Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fritz. We're back. We're a day late. I do apologize. Um, who are we blaming for this? I think we can blame... Can we blame Abby because she's not here? Probably. She'll get so mad. Johnny. She's got enough to cope with with that little <laughs> new one. Blame it on the British Bank holiday. <laughs> yeah, we'll blame it on the British Bank holiday. Uh, Johnny was off yesterday. Kit, you were off. Well, well, you're always off I've... on Mondays. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, we are back. We are a day late. Right as we record this, the Vuelta's time trial is ongoing. And so we're hoping to have results for that for you by the end of the show. Frankly, we think we know what's going to happen. And we can probably talk about things like the GC picture anyway. Joining me on this day late podcast... Shoddy Dave, just back from the Vuelta. How are you doing, Shoddy? I'm very good. I've not got any uh, serious sunburn because it is ridiculously hot in Spain at the moment. I don't know how the riders su- uh, suffer it or survive it even. Well, it's good to have you back on the show. Kit, how was your weekend? Rather less warm than Shoddy's. <laughs> um, you don't say. <laughs> now that the festival is gone, Edinburgh's gone back to its uh, ordinary service of mizzle um so yeah cozy your jumper collection is superb i have to say (laughs) well thank you as i would expect it needs to be if you live up there (laughs) yeah it's all right i pride myself on my jumpers and i think you should pride me on using the proper term indeed yes yeah not a sweatshirt not a hoodie a jumper (laughs) johnny long Welcome back to the show. How are you doing? Good afternoon. Good. Glad to be part of the British takeover of the Cycling Tips podcast. Yes. <laughs> Outnumbered. Uh, you know, Johnny, we talked a lot about this at the Tour de France this year. We both kind of hate uh, our own accents. Mm. Not not ours. Like, I don't really care about, I can't really hear my accent. But like when I hear an American accent elsewhere, I don't like it. And when you hear a British accent elsewhere... You don't like it, which is, in fact, I think the exact opposite of most of our our listeners, because uh, they tend to yell at us when we don't have enough of their own accents Ah. on the podcast. So what this is, is a cynical ploy to increase our (laughs) uh, British accented (laughs) listenership going forward. Fewer American accents, more of whatever you guys have. Uh, Anyway, let's get into today's show. We've got We've got lots of Vuelta to talk about. A lot of things have happened over the last week. Uh, First and foremost, we've got a lot of Remco to talk about. Uh, We made some some predictions and and we talked a lot about uh, Remco and and his ability or inability to truly contest for this Vuelta. And, well, he's started to answer those. Uh, I think that's kind of where we have to start, right? I, I mean, I guess Kit... Give me a brief rundown of sort of how the weekend went uh, for Remco and his competitors. And then we can talk a bit about, well, whether we think this is going to continue. Well, the short answer is that it went very well for Remco and not so great for everybody else. Um, on uh, the first uh, summit finish, which was the middle of last week, um, Enric Mass was the only one who could stick with Remco. And he, well, essentially muscled his way up the mountain and dropped everybody else. But on, at the weekend, when we had uh, Jay Vine's second stage win on Saturday um, and the second summit finish, and this was more of a, perhaps more of a proper mountain. Um, I mean, there was still the, 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 there was a nice cloud bank at the top, which seems to be Jay Vine's trademark. Um, 
but this uh, and this time it was a you know it was more of a GC we'll get to the finish together sort of day uh, penultimate day of the first in quotation marks week uh, but then on Sunday which was supposed to be Roglic's day with a really horribly steep uh, finishing climb Remco just dropped everybody including Enric Mass who had weathered the storm thus far um, and so uh, from where we sit now, uh, Evan Apool is one minute 12 ahead of his closest competitor, competitor Mass, and uh, almost two minutes ahead of Roglic um, before the time trial, and he's a former European champion. I mean, Roglic is the Olympic champion, but still, Evan Apool is not going to lose minutes today. Um, so, yeah, at the moment, it looks a bit sad for everybody, except for Remco Evan Apool, who is very much gagging his doubters. I want to I want to touch on Jay Vine in a little bit. I think we definitely need to talk about Roglic in a little bit, but let's stick with Remco here for the next couple of minutes. We said early on, and Ronan actually said said quite a few times that you know we just want to kind of sit back and see what Remco does, right? Like it feels like, frankly, he gets enough pressure from Belgian media and all the rest and and the Belgian public uh, that we don't need to pile on anymore. Uh, do we still feel that way? I mean, is 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 he now the favorite for the Vuelta, or are we still thinking that he's going to collapse like a proverbial flan in a cupboard? I think the really interesting thing is, is if it was any other rider, if this was Roglic in this situation, you'd be thinking it was a done deal and we're going to see a fourth title. But because Remco is such a an unknown quantity still, a sort of a mercurial talent because of his youth and sort of inexperience at Grand Tours that that's what's going to make us all watch every single climb because he could blow up on any day could have a bad day and then let someone like Enric Mass back into the fold which seems I'm it's crazy that he's like the guy that's going to be challenging Remco Evenepoel but also kind of fun and I've I think this vote has been much more interesting and exciting than I think any of us thought it was going to be and I think that's partly because of Remco Evenepoel and I don't think we often say that of our Grand Tour leaders. I mean, we were sort of so sure that, that Roglic would, would dominate this Vuelta that we actually banned people from picking him <laughs> in, in, in our pre-race sort of, uh, we, you know, on, on social media, on cycling tip, social media, we all, you know, the whole edit staff puts picks out there. Right. And we started putting them together. Uh, Mikey, our, our social editor started putting them together and we realized that like two thirds or more of us had all picked Primo's Roglic. And so we, banned picking Primoz Roglic and everybody had to pick somebody else. That's how sure we were that he was going to be going and, and would win a fourth title. And that looks not particularly sure anymore. I think where Remco's exploits so far have been a surprise is that he's kind of done it how you'd think Roglic would. We, the way that Remco was expected to make time was by going with these ridiculous attacks that would... They might work and he might take a couple of minutes in the first week, but they'd be a kind of um, classic uh, San Sebastian long ranger where he'd completely ruin himself for the following days. Whereas actually he's done what you kind of think of a GC rider doing where he's just, he just seems to be setting his own, his own pace. He rides on the front um, and it's, he's not uh, attacking. He's just riding people off his wheel. Um, And yeah, so it, it, he is very much, playing the GC game um, and it's and he's not doing what everyone expects him to do and going out of control just yet. Normally I'd say it's a, it's a done deal, but we have got 11 stages left 
And we've seen what Remco... And really big yeah, ones. <laughs> and we've seen what Remco's, like, or, or the way he can or couldn't handle the latter end stages of the other, other Grand Tours that is road. Plus, you look at the the Jumbo roster and it does seem a lot more stacked than Quick Step. This is where I think, I don't know if it's going to come down to Remco's problem or the team's problem because the team doesn't look as strong as Jumbo. So I, I think it's, it, it doesn't just come down to the rider in this case. Like It's definitely going to come down to the team a lot more than, say, look at, look at Tejac, the Tour de France. I think the the problem, though, is that there's, well, maybe this brings us on to a, another of our points a bit prematurely, but uh, Roglic has already lost his best mountain man, Sepkus. Um, and Eduardo Affini is less useful in the mountains, but they have COVID in their camp. Um, yes, Quickstep does too. Um, but I think... Uh, I mean, it was very evident on the day that, on, on the stage, was it six, um, when Remco first showed that what he was capable of and what everybody else wasn't, was that Quickstep had been the GC team on the front uh, all day um, and Jumbo Visma were nowhere to be seen except for Roglic, who was in the red jersey that day, if I remember correctly, which I don't know. It was really mollard that day. But still... Roglic was still the heir apparent of the red jersey and Jumbo Visma were nowhere to be seen. One of the big marginal gains that Quickstep have is we saw the ice bath at the Tour de France with uh, Adam Yates getting in and it was all nicely prepared. It was like a blow-up sort of lazy spa. If you've seen Quickstep have the big buckets, like the gardening buckets, and their riders are obviously so small and diminutive that they actually fit rather neatly into these buckets. Um, I don't know if you saw them, Dave, when you were at the race, but I like on Eurosport a couple of times, it's just been like Peter Seri or someone just like leaning wistfully out of this ice cold bucket. And it's just been, it's just been amazing. They also have Elan Van Wilder, who was a bit of a Remco lookalike. Um, ah. not, not, not in his team photograph, but if you look at the, the way that they ride, um, obviously now that we've got one of them in the red jersey, but I keep thinking, wait, why is he not in his red jersey? You've got, you've got this young, young <laughs> Belgian lad. Um, but maybe I mean they, the other thing about the Quickset team is that there are a, a lot of young riders. Mm. I mean, obviously their leader is one of them, but young and inexperienced riders uh, who are doing a very good job actually. Louis Vavaka and Ilan Van Wilder are doing a great deal of work on the hills. They've, I, I think that's been one of the most. I mean, anyone who follows me on Twitter will know that I was a bit stunned over the weekend by Everpool's exploits, but. Also, his team are doing a remarkable job. But again, I think they've got a couple of debutants in there. So you might expect in any other team, they would be sent home at the second rest day and not even try to stick around. And they can't do that if they've got a leader. Just, just to address the Iremco uh, collapse that, that, that we're all, I guess, not expecting, but maybe hedging against a little bit. Uh, like just to kind of put that in context. So, so, the Giro that he did collapse, I mean, he, he had a DNF at that Giro in 2021. That's the only other Grand Tour he's ever attempted. That's part of the reason why at, this, at the start of this race, we were saying he could be the next Pogacar. He could be the next Heimar Zabeldia. We don't know. <laughs> he's never actually gotten to three weeks before. And that Giro, uh, he was returning from from some pretty serious injuries. Uh, he actually had had taken a bunch of training time off again in the winter ahead of the Giro with illness. 
it was far from ideal preparation ahead of that Giro. And I think that that is sort of a context that gets lost because now we just go look at the DNF on stage. I think it was 18 uh, and say, okay, well, he just didn't have it. He couldn't finish a Giro. He collapsed a week and a half in. I think it was maybe even sooner than that. Uh, you know, he, he, he's a, he's a man for Perry Nice. He's not a, a man for the, for the three week grand tours, but I, I, you know, the Giro, you can't come in undercooked. Right. And he certainly that year came in undercooked. So I think now we're seeing for the first time a Remco that came to a grand tour sort of fully ready and raring to go. And I'm not sure that we're going to see the same level of collapse that we saw in that Giro, not least because he, and Kit, you kind of alluded to this earlier. He rode this first week a lot smarter than he did in that Giro. In that Giro, he was kind of going all over the place. He was, you know, he's going for for bonus seconds. Uh, actually, uh, some hearkening back to to Tade Pogacar in the first week of this year's Tour de France, just using too much energy, basically. Uh, you know, youthful exuberance, and that that, in addition to his less than ideal preparation, really caught up with him in the second week. We've seen him be a lot more, well, just careful in this first nine stages, right? Also, what we're seeing is a completely healthy Remco Evenepoel who's targeted this Vuelta against the Primoz Roglic, who always comes to the Vuelta off the back of a disappointing Tour de France, injured. Like, you never know with the mind games they play how recovered he is or not. Then he's also, like, dealing with the fallout from the Tour in terms of Jonas Vingegaard is now the, the top guy, the top GC guy of that team. So there's all of these things going around and then you're trying to play that against Remco Evenepoel, an obvious talent who's, who's who's kind of started to figure it all out, right? I also I also think, you alluded to it earlier, uh, Kaylee, about the Belgian press heaping pressure on this young lad. But being from being at the race last week, like the, the press presence is marginal. Like the press room's not even a quarter the size of what the Tour de France is. It's it's minuscule. Uh, and there's very few press on the ground there. So usually the, the the pressure of having the press harass you after every stage, a massive crowd around you would be something that a young, not just a young rider such as himself, but a young team would have to deal with where they've not really got that to deal with this time. So it's, that's going to be playing in his favour unless things do go his way later on in the race and it does look like he's going to have it in the bag, say, within three, four days from now. And then they, all the Belgian press send all the journalists down there to follow the last week of the race. Then that could also, yeah, be detrimental to not just him, but the other young guys on the team who aren't used to this pressure cooker of a, a Grand Tour favourite being under the spotlight. I think it'll be really, I mean, I keep... Remembering the, um, it was the earlier this year, it's really a Basque country where he was in the lead before the final day, and the rest of the GC men just took it to him for the on the final day, and he ended up finishing fourth. And we've and what was different about I went back to look because it was there weren't particularly long climbs that day, but it was a first category after a second category after a second category after a first category all day long, and it was the last, it was the penultimate day, no, it was the very last day of the um. Uh, of it's really a Basque country and it's there are a few there haven't been opportunities like that yet for the GC riders and there are some of those to come and so it, it does what I think and as Johnny was saying earlier the what we've got with Remco is a potentially much more exciting race and that the likes of Enric Mass 
and Roglic and possibly the Ineos guys um, and Almeida, if he perks up a bit, um, can really take it to them, take it to Remco in the last few days and take minutes out of him in, in, the, in those Toblerone stages where you've got one climb after another. Yeah, and there's a string of them as they head in toward Madrid. So like in the last two or three days of the race uh, are, are incredibly difficult stages without, you know, we got Sierra Nevada coming up at the end of this week. Uh, but after that, and Sierra Nevada, is, as it's, it's going to be its own test because it's the first sort of high altitude test that we're going to see Evenepoel, uh really go for. But then after that is, is the stages, kind of stages you're talking about. They just go up and down all day. There's no rest. It's all cat ones, cat twos. And that could be somewhere where, yeah, other GC riders could take advantage. However, however, Johnny, you wrote a piece this morning about the relegation battle. And one thing that may work in Remco's favor is that Enric Moss has basically been told that he needs to ride really conservatively because Movistar needs the points. And second place would be huge for that team in the relegation fight. Whereas if he sort of go all, goes all in, potentially he loses a lot of time, right? Potentially he slips from second to, to sixth or something like that. Right. Uh, he said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. He said that, you know, he would love to go for an all in kind of effort, but he doesn't think that he's going to be allowed to in this Vuelta, which really works in Eventpool's favor. Cool. Well, we've seen movie star before. Um, not listening to Timor, does that all they've got? They've got a good good history of riders having uh, hearing problems when the management say we want this happening, haven't we? That is very true. Although Enric Moss is not named Mark Soler, so I think that they may be okay. I think he's just saying that he wants to go for it because he knows that like team orders say he can't. So he's like he's finally got a chance to say like actually I really want to go for it and all guts and glory sort of assault instead of just finding myself in fourth overall, which is what he likes. Like, do you remember in the, in the Tour de France documentary? No, and then, yeah, the Movistar Tour de France bit where he's like, gets off the bike at the end of the time trial and he's absolutely buzzing that he's got like fourth. And it's like, you know, fair enough, that is impressive, but it's the, it's a set aside from the guys who, if they're not first, you know, they're last. But he's also, he's not the only one who could take it to, yeah, and by that, I mean, so we're looking at the at a trio, if, you know, to stay with those stages that we're looking at, it's stages 18, 19 and 20 are three of, are a string of really hard stages. And that, uh, it was stage 18 that Evenepoel left on the morning of the Giro. So we, he will be in completely unknown territory. Yes, he's a very different rider than he was then, but there is so, there are so many opportunities for everybody else. There are also stage wins up for grabs. Um and, uh, you know, the likes of, well, Roglic, he might just want a stage win if he's still around, if he's still in the picture. If he's not, then it might be a better opportunity to go for stage win. Or Carapaz, it doesn't, it might not need to be the GC guys that go for it. I think, I think there are enough people in the top 15 who will have something to gain from the Vuelta. And that's why we love the Vuelta, right? It's the redemption tour. There's always somebody going for something. Um, so I, I've got a lot of hope for those last three days. And I don't necessarily think that Remco will be uh I don't know downed by the by, by his rivals but I think that is the best opportunity for them although I hope they don't leave it to them he might not be in red after Sierra Nevada who knows Mark Padun is climbing his way slowly up the GC he's currently seven 
seven and a bit minutes back uh, and he's going to win two of the last stages back to back and <laughs> take the red jersey just like it's gonna be like Dauphiné-esque that's the late and then Pino will win the penultimate stage right just yeah. to end his season on a high also Kit you, you, you've you clocked up so many fines already for the penultimate it's gonna be a, it, might, it could be a harsh winter <laughs> up in Scotland <laughs> oh man <laughs> into the cliche jar with you uh, <laughs> uh i need to i need to continue keeping count of those actually i actually don't know what you're talking about <laughs> oh sorry well uh, so, so you 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 must have missed so that one of the first episodes of the tour de france dailies uh we decided that when we used cliches in particular penultimate and what was the other one it's um, just a word how's that not, a cliche <laughs> It's not not a day, not not a day. <laughs> well, the other one was one uh, this time. isn't a day. No, well, we that would definitely yeah. be included. Yes, no, it was the um, it was not a day that you could win the tour, but yeah. the day that you uh-huh. could lose it. <laughs> that was the big one. Uh, so, so anyway, we decided that for every cliche used, and I don't really know why penultimate got stuck in there, other than the what fact you, that it's a word. What do you say just, otherwise? Because it's not the last road stage either. Yeah, uh, it's, um, I don't know. We it's the second last day. It just sounds like bad vocabulary to me. <laughs> sounds like something God say. It's it's not a rule well, based okay, in logic. No. We, we, <laughs> <laughs> we decided we decided that for each cliche used, we would put one euro in the cliche jar, and then we would donate this this money to some charity at the end of the end of the season. So it's it's for a good cause. How, your use of how much uh, how much refined you get for not having listened to the Tour Daily podcast. <laughs> well, that, I think that's going to be that's probably ten euros at least. I think. <laughs> yeah, we just dock your pay though, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think we've I think we've chatted Remco enough. I think that we, well, to be honest, it's pure speculation at this point. Uh, we, you know, we're trying to provide a little bit of context Isn't that around our job? what he's done before and what we. Yeah, it is absolutely <laughs> our job. Uh, <laughs> just make some guesses. Uh, no, let, let, let's let's move on from let's move on from Remco. We, there's some other wealth of things to talk about. There's some other just bike racing things to talk and cycling things to talk about. Uh, Shadi, you you just got back from the Vuelta. Uh, we we well, I wouldn't say we sent you. It came to you, it really. Did. Uh, <laughs> so you, but you were on the ground at the Vuelta for a couple of days. I was. Well, it seemed rude not to go when it started thirty minutes away from my house. So I yeah, I did a, a few of the stages. Went went through the Basque region. Uh, got a bunch of videos, so stay tuned to the site and YouTube for for them. But there was a few takeaways, really. Um, like, there's a few talking points, but the, the main one I would have said was the crowd at Bilbao. It was absolutely immense. I've I've never seen a signing on quite like it. It was middle of yeah, middle of the week. I think it was like a, a, a Wednesday or something. Somebody will put me right. I'm sure in the comments. Um, but the crowds were immense. I couldn't believe how deep they were, how many people were there. And this clearly bodes well for the Tour de France next year because the Grand Depart is in Bilbao as well. There was actually uh, Christopher Prudhomme on uh, wandering around the start area, checking it all out, seeing, seeing what it could be like for next year. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, we know the Basque fans are, shall we say, mental, crazy, uh, enthusiastic. <laughs> enthusiastic yeah. there we go um, so yeah i'm <laughs> the big takeaway is just how excited i am and how excited the the area is i think for 
the tour next year. It's it's been many many years since we've had um, a grand depart in the Basque Ridge. I think the last was in San Sebastian back in could possibly be like the early nineties, late eighties. I'll have to I'll have to go and do some digging for the stats of that one. Now all we need is Yuskatel to get a, a wild card invite, and everything will feel just right again. I think that would be beautiful. It won't. We'll just Movistar to get a wild card invite. <laughs> that is so true. Oh, brutal. Yeah, brutal. Poor Movistar. But the, 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 other, uh, the other thing that I kind of picked up on, and um, Kit, you mentioned COVID earlier, so I'm going to come back to that. Was how sort of wishy-washy the security was at the Vuelta. So I'm going to be interested to see how um, how the old COVID situation pans out in this last half of the Vuelta because there was, there was days when I was no problem to walk into the pits and then there was other days when, yeah, I got accosted and was turned away even though I had the right passes. It does seem, um, it, yeah, at times it seemed like, the fans could get exceptionally close, and in other, other days when they were they were very much at arm's length. So yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens now. Yeah, I mean we don't want to we don't need to dwell on COVID for too long here, but it it, it kind of feels to me like next year they might just stop testing for it. That's that's kind of my guess. Uh, and to be honest, that's it's probably time. I don't like I don't know. Well, my. Much of my family are teachers at the moment. And for example, like teachers are going back to school right now in the US and no masks and not really testing and kind of just like, okay, well, if you get sick, you go home, right? Uh yeah. I I want I I think that's probably where we're headed in professional cycling as well, which it would take some stress out of these these grand tours, that's for sure. It doesn't, it doesn't, because you're still getting riders being sent home. That's that's the big impact on the race. It's the riders being sent home, whether they test for it next year or don't test for it and don't send riders home. That's that's where it'll matter if they send the riders home or not. Whether If they test, it doesn't really matter. It's just a case of if they send them home or not. Right. Well, it, it'll, it'll go back to the old the old metric, which is if you're too sick to race, then you go home. Uh, and if you're not too sick to race, then you continue racing. And, and I think that that's probably the way it'll go. I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure there are many opinions about this and I am not, as I've said before on this podcast, any sort of medical professional. I just think that that's likely the, the, the decision that will be made by the powers that be. Uh, and I'm not putting any any real judgment on that other than I just think that's probably what's going to now happen. If, if people uh, go and dig through one of the recent secret pro articles, he actually mentions that due to COVID, teams are actually looking after the riders a lot better health, like health and safety-wise. Like if you're real... <laughs> Right, we're not taking you here, there, or everywhere. Where previously it was like, just get on with it. You're paid to ride a bike, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. So now we, we've, whether we go back to them days of yet, yeah, you've got COVID, we don't care, you're gonna have to race, or whether it's like, right, you will stay home. Let's not risk it. Hopefully, the latter. Yeah. Well, we'll find out. We're just guessing at this point, but I think that's probably what'll happen. Before we move on from the Vuelta, the, we've got some other some other interesting things to talk about. Uh, I'm going to get to Alexei Lutsenko's baby in just a moment. But first, Jay Vine <laughs> came, no, I wouldn't say came out of nowhere, but he, he's, a, he's a Zwift Academy winner. So that's sort of how he found his way into the world tour, uh, basically producing more watts than anybody else on the internet. And it turns out that he's pretty good at producing watts in the real world as well. Kit, 
he had a good weekend and we're sitting here watching the uh, individual time trial out of the corner of our eye as we're recording this. It sounds like he had a pretty good day today too, right? Yeah, well, I mean, he's now got two, you got, you got the first two mountaintop finishes at the Vuelta. Um, he won them. Uh, second one joked that it was the, his first finish line photo, having finished in literal, I don't know, the thickest cloud that you could possibly put on screen. And the Vuelta uh, managed to, I don't know, <laughs> It was a bad day, um, weather-wise. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he got, and then he got his second. You couldn't see him. You couldn't see him at you all. Couldn't see him. No. And that is, you know, <laughs> talk about exaggeration. No exaggeration. You couldn't see him. But anyway, so on the and then two days later, he got up the road into a very strong breakaway that included Mark Soler and Thibaut Pino and Alexei Luxenko. Um So some pretty darn good climbers in there. Um, uh, but he uh, jumped away from them, six point five kilometers from the finish, and. Uh, uh, and took his second stage win, um, which everybody got to see. The sun shone on him and nobody else um, as a kind of, I don't know, here you go, have have this one. Um, but what, so the question that's been surrounding him in the following days has been, why, is he get, is he a GC rider for the future? Um, and the reason that that has just kind of jumped into my head just now is that he has just set the 10th best time at the finish in the time trial. And this is a guy who was not, last year, he was not, he did not feature in the time trials at all. I think he'd maybe ridden a time trial bike for, um, well, very rarely, let's say. Um, so he's evidently worked on that a lot. And it's, you know, it, we're in the middle of a of a grand tour now, so not everyone is going for it, but that's a pretty good uh, time uh, in the company. So maybe this is a, day for Australians to be rubbing their hands together for the future. I would be rubbing my hands together. I really enjoyed his honesty when asked about the best thing of winning your first Grand Tour stage. Uh, he said the bonus, which is refreshing, I think. <laughs> uh, and he also said that he was, he was going to buy a Corvette now that he'd won a, like, won a race, which seems like a ridiculously sort of dated thing to aspire to owning. Especially, I imagine he lives in like Andorra or something, or just seems <laughs> doesn't seem practical. That's also a massive bonus. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> that that'd be a pretty big bonus. Yeah, uh, a, a rear wheel drive Corvette in Andorra. That sounds like not a particularly useful <laughs> useful vehicle. <laughs> but hey, if he's into it, he's into it. Uh, there, there's a, there's quite a few riders in the in the European peloton. Although of course he's not European, he's Australian, who aspire for whatever reason to. American muscle cars. Uh, Peter Sagan quite um, quite famously is is very into his American muscle cars to the point where uh, you could buy an NFT of one of them. In fact, in fact, we don't talk about that though. But we'll leave that. We will leave that topic. Um, also, uh, how for not another time, but for never. How um how is has it already happened that Jay Vine is the Zwift Academy winner? Is the new Primoz Roglic was a ski jumper? Because for me, that's already happened. Mm. You know. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like yeah. I think that happened halfway through him winning that I mean, first stage. I was like, right, we get it. <laughs> we got it. We got it. You're very good at Zwift. Yeah. The fact of that though is that that the the the, the case that he's a Zwift Academy rider as well and come through the ranks is gonna shut a lot of people up, including myself, <laughs> uh, because I was. I, I suppose like a lot of people very negative about the idea, like you need to know, you need, you need the skills to pay the bills kind of thing. You can have all the power, but you've got to be able to ride a bike. And he's clearly learned the skills rapidly 
what you need to be in a, a pro peloton. It's it's incredible, and it's going to be interesting to see um, just how teams sort of look at Swift and other online training platforms uh, to to possibly recruit riders who might have, might otherwise slip through the net. Because you, you think about the amount of riders around the world who don't have the infrastructure, don't have the access to showing themselves off to the world, uh, showing themselves off to pro teams. Like it, it, we could be seeing people from places we couldn't dream of seeing pro riders coming from before. I, I mean, it's it's a huge thing in with some of the African teams. Uh, I mean, like the the sort of Team Rwanda and and things like that. Uh, they've spoken a number of times about how important this tool is for talent identification for such a like, I want to say like proof of concept around an athlete, right? Like this guy can do, or this girl can do X Watts. And so if we can teach them the trade, then they can. And by that, I mean like teach them the skills, then they can, they can compete at any level, right? If, if you can do the Watts and you can figure out how to turn, then you can, you can, you can race at any level. Right. Uh, I will say like the Zwift Academy winners has been, it's been a bit of a mixed bag, right? There's been a fair number of them. Some of them have done quite well. Some of them, you know, dropped into the world tour for a year or two and particularly in the women's Peloton and then kind of pop right back out because they just, they either couldn't build the skills fast enough or just weren't into living in Europe, for example. Uh, so it's, it's been a bit of a mixed bag, but there have been absolutely, absolutely been successes. And Jay Vine is, is now, you know, a bit of the, the poster boy for that. And I think we're going to see, I think we will see a lot more of it because I think that, yeah, Swift is, is an incredible tool for talent ID and we're only seeing the beginning of it right now. I think it's probably important to point out that with Jay Vine, we're talking about the 2020 winner. We're also talking about an Australian. So he had mm-hmm. lockdowns and a winter to train through. So he's a slightly different winner perhaps he was also part of uh, one of I, I i mean i'm not australian so i can't say for sure but i believe nero continental is one of the more recognized continental teams mm-hmm. so he was racing on the road already um and yeah. He, yeah he had months and months and months of not doing very much else except for riding his bike on a trainer when nobody was doing anything for several months so he is a slightly different uh you know character for that but yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that that you know, like like you said, he was already racing. He was already building that skill set. Uh, granted, the jump to the world tour is still a big one, but yeah, I, I think we. I think it's not the last. It's not the last sort of huge engine we see come out of either Zwift or or sort of any. You know, there's lots of different indoor training things, right? Uh, Zwift is just sort of the most popular. I think we. Yeah, not the last time we're going to see this happen. Well, realistically, it's not that different to how teams spot really young talent like they teams have guys who'll go to junior races or be in contact with um a a fleet of coaches around the world who will feed them information this junior kids putting out the numbers like as a junior you might not have the skills but they can see this raw data and then go right let's get that raw data get him the the right support get them the right training the right sort of coaching. And then yes, because I've got that raw data, we'll be able to hopefully turn them into an awesome pro. So it's no, no massive difference really from, from that sort of uh, way into the pro peloton. Yeah. And that's actually one of the theories behind the sort of rise of the very young grand tour contender, 
right? Because we've had a number and number number of them in the last couple of years. Megan Bernal, Pogacar, uh, Evan Apol, just three examples. That because the sport is now so data driven, and essentially teams know, oh, you can do six and a half watts per kilo. Okay, then you can be a Grand Tour contender. And it, and it's kind of as almost as simple as that, right? Where where before there was this whole sort of progression, and and you know you did the you did a year or two of racing in in the World Tour first, and then you maybe got to do the Vuelta, and then you maybe got to the Giro, and then finally got to the Tour de France, and you're 27 years old at that point, at the peak of your powers. And these days, they're just saying, no, you know, you're you're not you're never going to be a domestique because you can do the watts to make you never a domestique. Uh, and it's really sort of fundamentally changed the way that the sport is structured, uh, particularly around around these sort of like super talented youths. Right now, we don't really know what the effects of this are going to be potentially long term. Uh, are we going to see a lot more sort of, you know, the Remco's of the world burning out at, at 26, 27 years old? We don't know yet. Uh, I think that that teams do need to be careful, but it has certainly changed the game. But the, the the flip side of that is it, it does get me a little bit worried for not having these these talents such as Cavendish. When he was at the academy, the, the GB Academy, he could not put any watts out whatsoever. He nearly got dropped by the academy. But I think it was Rod Ellingworth was like said, no, this kid's got talent. He, he, he can't put the watts out in the in the lab, but he can win bike races. So it's not all down to numbers. So for any yet you felt there, don't don't lose heart. Cavendish couldn't put the watts out, but uh, somebody believed in him and he was able to show that yeah, raw talent does does shine through. So hopefully hopefully we don't lose them them raw talents that um yeah aren't good uh, on paper. Well let's move on from Jay Vine and Swift and Johnny, you're right. It's it's the it's the new ski jumping. I don't, we're get, we need to find something else out about Jay Vine so that so that we can we can use that instead. Anyway, let's move on from him. Uh, obviously, phenomenal talent, very interesting to watch. But even more interesting is the timing of Alexi <laughs> Alexi Lutsenko's baby. <laughs> what hap- What happened here, Johnny? The first thing you have to know about Alexei Lutsenko is that his sort of profile picture on Instagram is like him dressed like the DJ Pitbull, Mr. Worldwide. And it's it's like searching <laughs> up to check what was going on. I was like, that is the most phenomenal Instagram picture of any pro out there. Anyway, he, by the looks of it, the details are thin on the ground because unsurprisingly, Alexei Lutsenko is one of those people that writes hyper long Instagram captions about everything they had for breakfast, lunch and dinner. Um, but he just seems to have had a baby on the Vuelta rest day after he finished Sunday stage and before Tuesday's time trial and is just continuing the race. A well-timed baby. So mother and baby seem to be doing well. So he, so he left the race. Uh, I imagine he lives in Spain. His partner had a baby. Yeah. Yeah. His partner had a baby on the rest day. He went back to be there for said yep. baby Mother arrival. and child, yeah. And then, yep, and then went back to the bike race. Yeah, as you do. <laughs> he's, Baby's he's, name is also Alexi. Yes, that is also the most Alexi Luxenko thing ever, is that his baby is yeah. just called Alexi <laughs> as well. Um, possibly the most functional functional man ever. Um, and I think, I, think, I think that deserves to be celebrated as much as, you know, Jay Vine putting out so many watts or Remco and a pole winning stages. Alexi Lunk Sanko managed to have a baby and finished the Vuelta. 
Well, he didn't have the baby. Well, His partner had a baby, but <laughs> and resumed the water at least. Yeah. Yeah. Re- yeah. Yeah. I just I, I mean, Shadi, you and I have both been around when babies show up. I can't really imagine going back to a bike race twenty four hours later. Not at all. Uh, if, if, anyone, though- if anyone wants to go back to episode four of last, last year's tour and uh, hear something, get <laughs> about twenty minutes in. Not a knock on the door. Yep. Dave, it was a broken. Let's go to the hospital. <laughs> and yeah, I wasn't back the next day to even record a podcast. It's so more the fact nope, to him. Nope. Uh, I don't know if this is like a dad of the year award or like a not dad of the year award. Like, I don't, I don't know if, a star rider I don't know which of the year I fall on this one. If it was for like yeah, an amazing yeah. mountain stage and not a 30 kilometer time trial in Alicante, I think I'd probably be a bit more understanding. But surely you're looking for any excuse not to do that. Right, right. I mean, anyway, just 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 phenomenal timing all around. Like, really, just to to have the baby on the rest day and yeah, uh, the only available day. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The question is, if the baby if the baby had come not on a rest day, would he have just not gone, and would he have stayed at the Vuelta anyway? That's my question. Well, Richie Port did that. How didn't important he? was this baby to him? Yeah, true. Yeah. Anyway, we just thought that was interesting. <laughs> Hilarious. I, I don't I don't know what we thought it was, but uh we can we can move on from Alexi Litsenko's baby timing. Miracle uh, birth. We have a couple more things. Miracle birth. Uh we have a couple more things to talk about before we wrap up today. Uh the first, and we don't have Ronan here, which is unfortunate, but our man at Tour de Lavenir, Archie Ryan. Ronan kind of called this, said that he was a very good climber, said that he could potentially do something. Archie finished in fourth at the Tour de Lavenir, which is a massive, massive ride. I mean, we have said numerous times on this podcast and elsewhere that this race is basically going to show us who it's who we're going to be talking about for the next 10 years. Right. The the list of winners is long and illustrious. And the list of, frankly, like top tens is long and illustrious. And I just want to give a little shout out. To Archie, congratulations on your fourth place at the Tour de Lavenir. Uh, we can all, on the podcast and our listeners, we can all say that we knew you when, uh, before, before your big breakout moment at the Tour de Lavenir. Uh, we love to see it. We just love Isn't to see that it. why Ronan's not here? Because he's out celebrating with Archie Ryan. I thought that was, <laughs> I thought that was the reason, no? I, yeah, I think so. I think so. And you can find an Irish pub anywhere, so it's fine. <laughs> That is very true. Although we kept trying to go to them at the Tour de France and he kept refusing. Uh, so so maybe they found somewhere else to go. Uh, anyway, we have a, actually a couple different stories about the Tour de Lavenir up on the site, cyclingtips.com. Uh, our chief development writer correspondent, uh, Joe Laverick, has been giving us some some updates on sort of who to follow and, and uh, well, and who rode really well now that the race is over. So that story is going to be going up. Well, by the time you listen to this, it will already be on the site. So if you want to dig dig in a little bit more to who some of these writers are, does anybody on this podcast want to attempt to pronounce the winner's name? Yes, Johnny. I I definitely used to know it. I'll give it a go. Kian Utebrooks or Utebrooker, I think. Is that wrong, Kit? Kit shaking her head. Well, I, got, I I listened to some of Yosei's uh, uh, commentary at the weekend, and that is uh, first name correct, 
uh, from what I know. Uh, but no, the uh, I think maybe we should wait for Yose's uh, feature in which she's going to get Kian to pronounce his own okay. name later this week. Yeah. So we're going to drop the audio file for him <laughs> pronouncing his own name into that story because, frankly, the re- I've been skirting around it for five minutes now. I'm terrified to try to say it. Can you paste so, it over uh, what I just, just said? Gonna... <laughs> <laughs> we'll just drop it in. We'll drop it in. Anyway, like I said, we've got a bunch of Turtle Avenir content uh, coming your way on Cycling Tips. Again, go read that stuff because you will be glad you did in two or three years when these names are at the very top of the sport and you'll have a bit of insight into where they came from. And finally, just congrats to Archie. Uh, I, I know that a lot, actually he messaged me and Ronan and said, hey, a bunch of your audience just reached out to to, to uh, wish me good luck ahead of the Total Live So if you did that, drop back into Archie's DMs and just send him a congratulations because fourth at the Total Avenir is a massive, massive victory and we are taking basically all of the credit for it. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> the GP Plouet, which is no longer called the GP Plouet. Uh, what is it called? Classic <laughs> Lorient. Well, that's the women's Britannia version. Classic, it's got a really something. annoyingly long name. Yeah. It's too long. We're France, uh, yeah, I was, I was Grand Prix Plouet, something like that. Well, with a lot of sponsors yeah, in anyway. front of it, yeah. Yeah, uh, I think the UCI should ban naming sponsors from bike races, personally. I think it should be the something-something location of the bike race and call it that. Uh, sometimes we remove the sponsors from headlines just because they're literally like, like won't even fit the to the character count is too long in our own on our website. Regardless, GP Plouet happened. Uh, we don't have a whole lot. We don't want to, we don't dive too far into this, this bike race, but shoddy, you picked up on a, on a, on a, just a small story out of, out of Plouet where they removed a bunch of gravel like the night before the race. What happened here? Well, we are basically, they, <laughs> They they ch- pre they changed the circuit this year to include gravel for the first time. There was two sectors, one with about eighty kilometers to go that was close to uh, one and a half kilometers long, and then one with fifty k to go to the finish with a fifty, which was a fifteen percent gradient uh, climb. And the the day before, a couple of days before, teams were out reconning the circuit, checking it out, riders and staff, and they informed the UCI that they weren't happy with the sectors being in the race. So the UCI basically said, no, went to the organizers, said, you can't include these two sectors within the race. We've had complaints. Um, And the night before the organizers had to change the route um, to the point where the organizers uh, put out a little bit of a a cranky uh, comment saying, I'd quite happily go to the start tomorrow and tell everybody that the race was off. Uh, there's there's riders who are for it, riders who are against it. Um, personally, like I used to live an hour's ride from there. I've raced the I've raced the U twenty three version myself, and it's a it's a hard enough circuit to and a selective enough circuit to not have to have gravel in there. But I can fully understand, kind of I suppose, why the organisers were wanting to put gravel in there because it has. It's lost that sheen. It's lost that prestige that it used to have 
20, even 30 years ago, I suppose. It used to be one of the, one of the not monuments, but it was up there. It was sort of sat just below it. It was the up there with Lombardy, I suppose. Now it's kind of a, not even a second run race. Like I think that I think I, I presume their 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 train of thought was sort of along the lines of um, Parry Tours, who threw a bunch of gravel in there two three years ago and really revived the race, made it something worth watching again, rather than just a sprinter's classic. It was sort of like a yeah, it had a bunch of gravel in there, made it a lot more exciting, a lot more eyeballs on there, and obviously generated a bit more revenue that way. Um, and what with Trobro Leon. Being up and being around for oh, I think thirty odd years now, and in the past few years, really up in the game and getting some good teams there, getting a lot of coverage. I'm guessing the organisers are wanting to replicate that. I think one of the issues is that like they kind of need to go all in or not, you know. Like Trevor Leon is is I forget exactly how many uh, segments of Ribenu as they call them, which is sort of like like farm double track that they race on. Um, but it's a lot, like it really defines the race. And in the, in the same way that like the cobblestones define Roubaix, you've got enough of them that it's a, it's a true test and it, and it, and it, it, like I said, it defines the race. I think if you just stick like random, two random segments <laughs> into a, into a circuit that was like, like you said, already quite difficult and quite selective. I'm not sure that the sort of like the narrative really works, right? You need some sort of like reason for these things to be there. So while I'm generally in favor of gravel being in quote unquote road races or, or, you know, applying, making the riders apply different, uh, skill sets to these races, uh, I think that, that race organizers do need to think in terms of like, like I said, narrative, like, oh, will these things actually define the race or are they just basically opportunities to get a flat? Because what you don't want is, is the latter. Uh, and I don't, I don't know whether Plue was sort of whether the original plan was was on one side of that or the other, but that is certainly something that, yeah, just chucking chucking random segments in just feels like not maybe the solution. It's a race without an identity. I feel it's and they they could have an identity yeah. because that region. Well, just look at B and B hotels. They they've got their own identity. They treat themselves as the Breton team, and it's it, it's a, it's a strong identity, the men in and glass. they could. Yeah, admittedly, don't win many races, but they they have a they have a they have a good a good following, and it's they need to take sort of the ideas of that team, the ideas of the region, and implement it into making the the race yeah have more of an identity because it just feels sort of like a, a bit of a washout now. Uh, uh, it feels a shadow of its former self. The race in Glass. Mm, I like it. Yeah, there we go. We've given them their new their new tagline for free. What's going on with the TT? Revenapool. Revenapool's just obliterated Cavania's best time by 20 seconds at the first time check. Yeah. Hold on. Before we go anywhere, um, any any further, we're talking about the mountain bike world. What about Sagan? I think it was 17th at the e-mountain bike world, wasn't he? He had a massive crash, didn't Ooh. he? Yeah. Oh. Oh, oh Peter. <laughs> How the mighty have fallen <laughs> all the way down to e-mountain bike worlds. <laughs> Which I've actually done an e-mountain bike race before. It's incredibly hard. You just go faster, basically, but you still have to pedal. Uh, and then you're on this big bike that weighs like 50 pounds. And yeah, so, you know, 
I guess it's still it's it is still racing. Uh, it just feels a little bit a little bit different. Anyway, let's before we wrap up today, let's get a brief time trial Vuelta time trial update. Now the race is not over yet, so. I don't know if you're listening to this, you know more than us at this point, <laughs> but Kit, uh, we have some indication as to how this might end up because we do have the first time check for uh, Remco Evenepoel. Yep. W- what's going on? Well, I think nobody will be surprised that he is faster by 20 seconds than the time set by his teammate, Cavagna. And behind Cavagna, everyone's quite close together. Sivakov, Roglic, Yates, Mass even. Mass faster than Dennis at the first time check. And Lopez, um, but yeah, uh, Evanapol has gone twenty seconds faster than his teammate after. I don't. What was the first time check? Ten kilometers. The second, third, fourth are all within a second of each other at that first time check, and then twenty seconds up is is Remco. So I, it's safe to say at this point in time that Remco Evanapol, barring him falling over or something in the next fifteen minutes is probably going to win this TT and take even more time on the likes of Primoz Roglic and Enric Mas. So that sets up a pretty fascinating week of bike racing here. With that, we had a, it's time for us. Oh. We had a crash here at the finish. No, Aaronsman just just finished. Uh, he was He's quite far down, but he's obviously not feeling very well at the finish line. Uh-oh. I think he's just finished. We're currently watching Dave watch the bike race, which is more than yes, 10 he, than I thought finished, it would be. He finished 24th uh, provisionally. That cycling um, goggle box. <laughs> on a podcast. Yeah. I saying that I watched, we, we, I watched Kit's face earlier when I noticed, I was watching at the same time, yeah. flicked my head around and I noticed Kit smirking at Remco wearing that <laughs> specialised TT yeah. helmet. And then another time, her eyebrows raised and she leaned further forward into her screen when she noticed that Teo just had his wrists in an ice bucket. Yes. What's happening there? <laughs> I mean, it's hot. That's what's happening there. <laughs> uh, I think basically that we need to start recording the podcast again and putting it on YouTube so that people can see <laughs> us react to things that we're not even talking about at the time. Uh, all right. It's time for us to wrap up today. Thank you, everybody. For listening, we do apologize for having an episode that is a day late. I think actually next week will also be a day late because uh, in the U.S. anyway, we have Labor Day on Monday. So, well, maybe Abby will host next week. I'll, I'll take a week off. You guys don't have to listen to me for a week. Won't that be exciting? All right. Let's wrap up. Bye, everybody. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>